Well, we are uh, kind of slowly finishing up actually a series that we've been in in the Gospel of John, and we're looking for the last couple of weeks at interactions that Jesus has with, uh, with His disciples and others after He has been resurrected. And it's beautiful to see, actually, the, the proclamation of John, that Jesus comes and not only shows Himself as actually being physically resurrected like He said He would, but deeply encourages His disciples. We're going to see today Jesus showing us a bit of who He is. So if you've got a Bible, you can open it up to John chapter 21, or you can follow along on the screen with me as we see Jesus as He appears to His disciples here. John chapter 21, and I'll start right at the beginning there. After this, Jesus revealed Himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and He revealed Himself in this way, Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. And they said to him, We will go with you. And they went out and they got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet his disciples did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? They answered him, No. And he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but only about a hundred yards off. And when they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and he hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread, and he gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us. Father, we are grateful that you have revealed yourself to us, that you have not hidden. Thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, that we get to, to sit with it and open it and hear from it. Lord, we ask now that you would open our ears and our eyes and soften our hearts that we might see Jesus more clearly today, and in seeing him, might know him and might know his love and might love him more deeply in return. We pray all of this in his name. Amen. I heard a story the other day about the, uh, the beginning of the show Candid Camera. Uh, some of you probably are, are old enough to remember when Candid Camera was on TV. If you don't know what that is, uh, it was kind of one of the first reality shows, really, one of the first hidden camera shows, and the producers would set up cameras somewhere, and then they'd kind of prank people. They'd play these fun jokes on people and film them the whole time, even though they had no idea they were being filmed. And so they do something like, uh, like this. One of them was uh, a woman comes home from a trip, supposedly. She's got all these bags that she's carrying, and she sets them down on the sidewalk, and she's about to go in, and there's an unsuspecting man walking by whom she asks for help. And this nice man, of course, offers his help. He's going to help her carry her bags inside. 
But what he doesn't know is that the producers have, have actually installed a very powerful magnet underneath the ground right where his, the bags are, and the bags have metal in them. So when this guy goes over to, to, to think that he's just going to do this really nice thing and help this woman with her bags, and he tries to pick up the bags and he can't move them because they're stuck to the ground. Well, after trying, you know, and struggling and in total confusion for some time, the woman comes over and, you know, kind of confused look, looks at him, and, and she goes over to the bags, and of course at that time they, they switch off the, uh, the magnet, and she just picks them up and walks straight in, right? And the guy is just utterly confused. Well, there was this interesting thing about Candid Camera that wasn't there actually when the show started, that it became actually one of the key pieces of the whole thing. It's actually probably the phrase that most of us remember the most. They called it the reveal, where at the end of the show, once the prank was kind of finished and this person that they've pranked is in utter confusion, they would kind of come out from behind the curtains and they would say, smile, you're on candid camera. And it was like they had, they had lifted the curtains for the person and brought him into the joke. And now everybody wasn't just laughing at you, you were able to laugh along with them and it was a lot of fun for everyone. Well, the reveal is a literary device, really, that you find kind of everywhere, isn't it? If you've ever watched a superhero movie or read a comic book or anything, you know, you know all the superheroes have secret identities. And every now and then, Superman might take off those glasses, and unbelievably, it's actually the same guy, right? And he reveals himself to a select few. They get to see who he is. They get to see his true identity. Or if you're a fan of mysteries in a, in a whodunit story. You always get the reveal at the end, at the end of Scooby-Doo, remember? It was always somebody would pull a mask off somebody. Professor Parker, you know, yeah, it was you all along. Yeah, and I would have gotten away with it if it weren't for you meddling kids, right? There's the reveal where we get to see actually who it is. Well, Jesus reveals himself here. John actually uses that word for us three times in this passage, and he tells us at the end of the passage that this is the third time that Jesus revealed himself to his disciples. And there's, of course, just kind of the regular meaning of that. He showed up. He physically appeared to his disciples. He was there. But there's also, I think, something under the surface, too, for us, is that Jesus, in some way, is kind of pulling back the curtain for us and showing us who he is. He is revealing not just his physical presence to these disciples, but he's revealing his character. He's revealing a bit about who he is to them and to us. So that's what I want us to look at today, is who do we see Jesus to be in this passage? How does he reveal his character to us today? And we'd like to focus on, on two things today. Two things that we see in Jesus. And first is that we see that Jesus abundantly provides and then that he graciously welcomes. Those are the two things we'll look, about, look at today. Jesus abundantly provides in this passage and he graciously welcomes. Let's look at the first one. He abundantly provides. Look all through this text, actually, we get keys to this. In verse 6, when Jesus says to cast their nets over on the right side of the boat, they, we hear this, they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in. So the net is so full of fish, we get here in verse 6, that they can't haul it all in because of the quantity of fish. We hear it again in verse 8, the disciples came in the boat dragging this net full of fish. They couldn't get it in the boat because there were so many, so they had to drag it ashore. And then once they get ashore, we get another clue here in verse 11. Simon Peter went and hauled the net ashore full 
of not just regular fish, but large fish, and then John counts them for us, 153 large fish. So over and over and over in this passage, what we're hearing is that Jesus has provided for them, but he's not just provided for them in a little way. He has given them an incredible abundance. He has given them actually more than they even need. There was a study done uh, not too long ago by a couple of professors. It was an economics professor from Harvard and a psychology professor from Princeton, and they got together, and they had this question or this thought that they wanted to explore. And their thinking was this, is that when human beings lack something in their lives, their minds are almost always focused on that and that alone. When we lack something in our lives, our minds, our thoughts, our activities, all of our life seems to be directed toward that absence. For instance, they studied people who were hungry, very hungry, people who are really on the verge of starvation. And you would think if you don't have food around, food is the last thing that you'd want to think about, right? You, you would think food would be the last thing in your mind. I don't, I don't want food anywhere near my thoughts because I can't eat it. But actually, it's the opposite that's true is that very hungry people actually spend the majority of their time thinking about food and in strange ways. They would go through the, the newspaper and they would actually, uh, they would compare prices in the newspaper between different grocery stores. They would memorize recipes. They would make plans, even written out plans about how they were going to become restaurateurs. They were going to open up restaurants when they finished this. It was like food dominated their thoughts. There was scarcity of food, and that actually led them to focus almost exclusively on what was scarce in their life. The same is actually true about money. They studied the very poor, and they found that instead of not ever thinking about money, which you'd think maybe that's the reason you're poor is because you never think about money, it's actually just the opposite. So oftentimes, the very poor spend majority of their time thinking about money, planning, considering, and oftentimes it's actually those thoughts about money that get them wrapped up into circles and, 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 and create actually poor spending habits. But you've probably also known how this can be applied to relationships. The people who kind of have the scarcity of relationships oftentimes continue that, that terrible cycle because they're always thinking about it, right? If you're kind of the awkward person who's lonely, then you're thinking about all the time how you're lonely and how you want friends, and then when you show up to somewhere like a party, because you're trying so hard to make friends and impress people, you end up being the awkward conversationalist, and it pushes people away. And so the person who needs friendship the most ends up in a place where they can find it, and they end up lonelier than they started. But you know, it's true in so many ways, I believe, in our lives, is that when we live out of this idea of scarcity, when we live out of this idea that we don't have what we need, we end up consuming our lives with that thing, and it actually makes us worse off. It's like drinking salt water. It makes you even more thirsty. But isn't it beautiful here that we see that Jesus provides not just a little bit? Jesus doesn't say, hey, let's try it again, and one person catches a fish. He doesn't say, hey, let's try it again, and, you know, everybody gets one little fish so they can come cook it on their fire. No. Jesus provides abundantly. He gives them more than they need. He is telling them, I am here to give you everything so that you can live your life not out of scarcity, 
but out of abundance. It's good for us to consider that for a second. Because we are so oftentimes seeking the things that we think we lack from other places, right? Feeling sexually frustrated? Well, go find your needs met in some way. Maybe it's an appropriate way, maybe it's not. Feeling emotionally kind of drained or, or you're not feeling like your emotional needs are, are filled? Well, go find those emotional needs in somebody else. Maybe it's not your spouse, feeling like uh, you're not liked the way that you are, feeling like maybe you're not acceptable, we'll just develop a different persona or image or find your identity somewhere else so that you can finally fit in, right? We're oftentimes looking for ways to fill what we think of as scarcity in our lives by something outside of what God gives. But here's the beautiful truth, is that if you belong to Jesus, there's no scarcity. He has given you everything that you need, and He's not skimpy with it. He has given it to you in abundance. We've seen it all throughout John so far. In chapter 2, Jesus shows up for His very first miracle, the wedding of Cana, and He turns water into wine, but He doesn't just make one bottle of wine, does He? He makes about 900 bottles. When He meets the woman in Samaria at the well, he tells her that he doesn't just have a little drink of water to give her. He has a river of living water to provide. When he feeds the 5,000, there are 12 baskets full left over after everybody has been fed. It is an overwhelming superabundance. And when Jesus provides this incredible catch for his disciples here, he is telling them very clearly, I have everything that you need, and I have it in complete abundance. Friends, that is one of the things that Jesus shows us here. He is a Savior who provides abundantly. We don't have to live out of scarcity because we have somebody that gives abundantly. That's the first thing. Here's the second one, is that we see in Jesus not just an abundant provider, but we see Him as a gracious host. He graciously welcomes. Let's look at the text one more time. Verse 9, we read this, is that when the disciples got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. That sounds just kind of regular at first, but just think with me about that for a second. The disciples get out of the boat and they see that Jesus is there early in the morning and he started a fire. But it's not just a fire. John goes out of his way to tell us it's a charcoal fire and they don't have match light right? So, Jesus didn't just light this charcoal on fire. Charcoal actually has to be burned down. So, Jesus has been tending this fire for actually quite some time. It's a nice, warm charcoal fire by this time, and He's already cooking something on it. He's got fish that He either bought from a market or caught Himself, and He's brought bread with Him, either from home or, again, He purchased it somewhere. Jesus has been there for a while preparing to serve His disciples. There's a beautiful irony here, isn't there? Is that Jesus actually shows up on their turf, but He shows up as the host. Jesus doesn't show up as the guest. He shows up as the host. He's the one who's prepared. He's the one who welcomes them and invites them. He's the one who serves them. We've talked before about the difference between a guest and a host. Just think about it for a second. 
The host, if you invite somebody over to your house, if you're the host, you're going to act a very particular way. First, you're the one who's doing the inviting. You're saying, hey, do y'all want to come over for dinner Thursday night? Great. And then once you've invited somebody over for dinner, you've got to actually do the work of preparing for them to get there. You're probably going to clean up a little bit. If you're cooking dinner, you've got to go to the store to get the ingredients. You've got to start preparing the ingredients. Sometimes this can actually last a couple of days. Even if you're just purchasing dinner, you're the one who's got to go out and get it. You're the one who's got to pay for it. You have to actually spend your own time and effort and money preparing for your guests to come over. And then, of course, when they come, you're going to serve them. You welcome them in. Take their bag, their coat. Can I get you a drink? Have a seat here. You are always serving your guests because they're the one that's at the center of all that you do. All of your thought and your effort is directed toward the other person. If you're a guest, you're really just there to receive. Maybe you've brought a bottle of wine, but that's not going to really pay for what they're giving. You're the one who is there to receive the beautiful hospitality of the host that has invited you in. I don't know if you've seen this, uh, this movie, 80s movie, four, 80s foreign movie. That probably excludes most people here. Uh, but this uh, movie called Babette's Feast, really a fantastic movie. It's based on a short story, a Danish short story, and uh, it's, it's in Danish. So just FYI, if you want to watch this fantastic movie, it does have subtitles, although it did win an Oscar for the best foreign language film. So I'm not the only one that thinks it's good. Uh, Babette's Feast is about this little, this little Danish village and it's not just a village, it's actually kind of a commune, because everyone there is part of this particular religious sect, and they're really strict, and they're real austere, and they live kind of under this, this, this idea that really true spirituality is, uh, is, is devoid of anything that's fun or enjoyable. True spirituality is devoid of anything like laughter or, or fun or food, or beauty, or art, or any of those things, really what it means for us to devote our lives to God is to mean that, that we're always really serious. That's the setting that it takes place in, is this little Danish town. And two of the main characters are these sisters, and their sisters, uh, these sisters are the daughters of the guy who's kind of started this whole sect. And they used to be beautiful young women when they were younger, now they've gotten kind of older, and they've really devoted most of their life to serving the people around them. And so they spend all of their time bringing food to, to shut-ins and, and to, to the poor and to the elderly, and they're, they're beautiful and wonderful servants. And at one point, actually, in their life, a woman named Babette comes in, and she's, uh, she's actually fleeing. She's, um, she's fleeing from Paris, so she lands here in, in Denmark, and because there's, there's war in Paris at the time, and she has to leave, so she lands with these people, and she's got nothing. And they take her in, and they start to employ her, and they say, all right, you can, you can cook, you can help us cook, and you can help us serve the people around us. And so that's what she does. She helps them cook this, this fish soup, really bland fish soup and bread that they cook literally every day, same thing over and over. And slowly over time, she, she comes to love them and comes to love the community and the people, and she, she really sees the beauty of their humble ways and their simplicity. But one of the things that they don't know, there's a reveal in this story too, is that in her former life in Paris, she was a chef to royalty. And so she spends all of her days cooking this bland soup over and over again and loving the people but still dreaming of one day returning to Paris. She wants her old life back. 
So actually, every year she plays the lottery, and she's hoping to win the lottery, the French lottery, so that she can have enough money to buy a ticket back to Paris and kind of have her old life back. And amazingly, it happens one day. She wins the lottery, and she wins like 10,000 francs, a small fortune. And of course, everybody in this little town knows everybody's business, so they know she's won the lottery, and there's this, this beautiful kind of mix of, we're so excited for Babette, but we're so sad she's leaving, right? Nobody really knows kind of what to do with it. And so she says this, she says, listen, before I go, I would like to do something for you. I would like to actually cook you a meal. I would like to cook a meal, a real French banquet for the whole community. And at first, of course, they're like, no, you can't do that. No, Babette, that would be, you know, you can't spend all your money kind of on us, that sort of thing. And plus, you know, we won't really do that sort of thing. It sounds a little lavish. We're not into that. But finally, they give in because it's you and you're asking for it. We'll let you cook this feast for us. So she starts the preparations. And you see in the movie, these shipments start to come ashore of, you know, live animals that nobody's ever seen and spices and casks of wine, and this, these things that are just coming for weeks as she's preparing for this banquet. And finally, at the night of the banquet, everybody's kind of gathered together, and she sits everyone around this big banquet table and serves them this, the first course. It's a turtle soup. And uh, everybody sits down, and they kind of take their first sip of the soup, and you can tell in everybody's mind it's the best thing that they've ever tasted in their lives, but they're not going to show it. They don't want to make everybody know that they're enjoying something, so they just kind of sit in stern silence for a little while. But every time they take another little bite, it feels like they're loosening up a little bit more. And then, of course, comes the wine, this beautiful French vintage that she has picked out exactly to pair with every course. And as they start to drink a little bit of wine and eat this wonderful soup, smiles start to come on people's faces and people start to say a couple of nice things to each other. Maybe an arm raises and pats another person on the back, and they begin to joke and laugh a little bit. And then the main course that is quail, and it's this incredible dish that is actually world-renowned. She's the one who invented it. And as they start to eat this dish together, not only are they enjoying one another, but actually they start to deal with one another in pretty amazing ways. One person starts to apologize for some of the wrongs that he has done to the other person. And the other person begins to forgive, and there's this beautiful flow of forgiveness and grace and discussion and community. And by the end of the night, they are a transformed people. They actually find themselves to be more human after they have eaten this feast with Babette than they were to begin with. She has transformed them personally and communally. And at the end of the movie, the sisters come to Babette and they say, not only was that such a wonderful feast, but we're going to miss you so much when you leave. And she says, I'm not leaving. I don't have any money. I've spent it all on this feast. And it's a beautiful picture, isn't it, of the host who spends everything to lavishly provide for the people that she's serving. Maybe we can think of somebody else who has spent all that he has to come and lay it out for us so that we might actually find our true humanity in him, so that we might find true community in him. Friends, if you belong to Christ, you have been welcomed as a guest to his feast. He has given it all for us, 
He has left his father's throne, and he has spent his fortune on providing for us. He has invited us, he has prepared, and he has served us well. That great host has welcomed us graciously as his guests. When we come into church, we don't come in as those who have anything to bring. We come as those who have empty hands, as guests waiting to be fed by the king. But of course, here's the wonderful dynamic about belonging to Christ, is that we get to be the guests, and because we are the guests, we are now actually called to be the hosts. Jesus tells us that because he has fed us and served us and loved us and been so lavish with us, is that we get to in turn welcome others. Isn't that beautiful? That we get to play the role of the host for others to come in. Let me give you one small challenge here. There are plenty of ways that we could apply this. Here's one small way. When you show up for worship on Sunday mornings, what if you thought of yourself as a host rather than a guest? What if you thought of yourself as the one who is welcoming in others rather than the one who is to be welcomed? Now, I love it when people come in and they see a face they know. I love it when it feels like our worship on a Sunday morning is like a family reunion when people see old friends, and they see people maybe that they only see once a week at church, and they, you know, at least a year ago, got to give them a big hug and talk to them. I love that connection. I love the beauty that it shows. But what if we also, instead of looking for faces that we knew, intentionally looked for faces that we didn't know, so that we might welcome others in, so that we might be the gracious hosts who are here to invite and prepare and serve the people we don't know. Will that be hard? It will be. Our natural tendency is not to look toward others. It will be difficult. But friends, it is the love and the grace and the welcome and the hospitality that we have been shown that empowers us to be hospitable to others. We get to see Jesus in this passage. And you know, if you've ever just wondered who he is, if maybe you've been investigating him, or maybe you've known him your whole life, you've been walking with him daily like these disciples have been, either way, I think Jesus wants to reveal himself to you today, to show you who he is in his abundant provision, to show you who he is in his incredible and gracious welcome, so that we might live out of that abundance and live out that hospitality with the ones around us. Let's pray that the Lord would enable us to do that even today. Pray with me. Lord, you are a generous and loving provider. You are a gracious host. It's good that we just settle into that for a minute to realize that we have been given more than we can count, to realize that we have been welcomed, Paul says, even when we were enemies to be called your friends. Lord, will you let us, empowered by your great love and mercy toward us, begin to show that love and mercy toward one another, that we might live out of the abundance that you have provided for us and that we might live out that great hospitality that we have been shown.
We pray it all in the name of Christ. Amen.